Man, it is so good to be with you guys again. I have been gone for a while, and uh, yeah, that's clapping because I've been gone for a while. I understand. You know, we got a chance to see some family, and uh, that was a tremendous time. And then last week being at Crown Point, but man, this is where I belong. Like, I just miss you guys. It's so good to be with you and to get in God's Word together. What a, what a great time we're going to have together. And we're starting a little mini-series this week and next week, and it's called Relevance. I can think of no better object lesson for the struggle for relevance than a sneaker, okay? Because when I was a teenager, it mattered what shoes you wore. And it seems it still matters what shoes you wear. I'm guessing it's always mattered. I don't really know. I mean, just take these for example. These have been popular for how long? I don't know. Since basketball was invented or something? And when you are growing up, there comes a point in your life where you care about what you look like and you care what people think of you. I remember being a little kid, like elementary school age kid, and I didn't care as much back then. I, my dad was a construction worker, and uh, I, was, I so wanted to be like my dad that I asked for construction boots for Christmas. Now, I wasn't trying to pull off the whole hip-hop construction boot thing, okay? I just slapped construction boots on whatever I was wearing. Playing soccer, construction boots. And I, and I didn't realize at the time how completely unhip I was, but I didn't care. Then I got into middle school and I got into high school and all of a sudden I cared. Like I have very vivid memories of walking around the shoe store, scouring all the shoes to try to find a pair of Nikes that actually were under the budget line my parents gave me. Okay, Marco, look for shoes. They got to be under, I think it was like 25 or 30 bucks. Okay, it wasn't a lot to work with, maybe 25 I'm looking at every pair of Nikes, and I can't seem to find any. And the holy grail would be if it said Nike, and underneath it said air. I never understood what made air so much more expensive. I mean, it's just air. It's free. But as a kid, I wanted these Nike Airs so bad. My parents didn't have a ton of money to buy me Nike Airs. But, you know, we all want to fit into the world around us. We all want people to like us. We all want to be one of the cool kids. That's a good thing that's only teenagers, though, that struggle with that, right? We care, we want to fit in, we want to be relevant. And there, there's nothing wrong with relating to people because of your hobbies or your interests, or even your fashion or, or whatever. In fact, it, part of the, the, being human means you connect with other humans because of what you're interested in and what you do. That's okay. I'm actually a big believer in appreciating culture and being in the world but not of the world. I believe that's, that's what we're called to do as Christians. Jesus didn't say to his disciples, they will know you by your lack of fashion sense. He said, they'll know you because of your love for one another. So it's okay to like culture and that kind of thing. But our desire to be relevant should never cause us to be ashamed about the gospel that we believe in, ever. So this morning we begin a two-week series, and, and my goal during this series is to, to show you something about the gospel, okay? This is what I want you to see, and it's that our belief in the gospel is what sets us apart from the, the rest of the world, and sometimes we're even considered irrelevant because of our belief in the gospel, like irrelevant, not even relevant at all. But here's the amazing thing, and this is what I want you to see this week and next, is that we have something as believers that is the most relevant thing in the entire universe, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you understand that we have good news for all people, every person, no matter what their situation, 
who they are, what race they are, what background they come from, how much money they make. The gospel is relevant to them. And Jesus Christ is the most relevant human that ever lived. And that's what we're going to see this week and next. We're going to consider two very different people back to back in the book of John. I think it's so neat that John records two narratives and the people couldn't be any different. And yet, Christ relates to both of them perfectly and just where they are. And that's what he does. It has nothing to do with what Jesus is wearing. It has everything to do with who he is as a person. So we begin this morning in John 3. If you grab your Bible and you find John 3, you're going to go to the New Testament. You're going to find the Gospels, which is what begins the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth Gospel. And then turn a couple of pages till you get to chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 15 in a moment. Before we get into it, though, a couple things about John. It was written by the Apostle John, who is the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he refers to himself. And he wrote this gospel, like all the gospel writers, like the other three, to give us a record of Christ's a time on earth, what Jesus did, who he is. But John's a little different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call those gospels the synoptic gospels, and they're very similar and they probably had each other, or they, 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 they read each other's works. We're not sure which one was first, maybe Mark. But John seems to write almost independently, as if he, he didn't even have access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or if he just, under the Spirit of God, was just writing on a whole other level. And people often say that, that John, he flies above everything. He kind of gives you a bird's eye, eagle's eye view of who Jesus is. That's his main concern, is who Jesus is. It might be why the early church referred to John as John the Eagle. But I want to read John 3, verses 1 through 15 here. Notice this account of Jesus and Nicodemus. Follow along as I read John 3, 1 through 15. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? And truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into the heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus is referring to himself there, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's word. I want to begin this morning where our passage ends. So verse 15, just look back at verse 15. And verse 15 says, whoever 
believes in him may have eternal life. And I begin here because this is the bedrock truth that this series, this little mini-series, is built on. And that is that, that whoever believes in him, whoever, whatever their background, whatever they're like, this is an incredible offer that is extremely inclusive. There is no one in the universe, if they do not repent, cry out to God and ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins. There's no one in the universe, if they do that, that will be rejected from God, because whoever believes in the name of Jesus will be saved. The very next verse, we didn't read it, but verse 16, you know it well. John 3, 16, and I don't think it's any accident that this verse is between the account we're looking at this morning, Nicodemus, and next week, the woman at the well. Here is this verse in between that says, as you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus, whether you're Nicodemus or the woman that we'll look at next week. Verse 15 and 16 in John 3 are connected, actually, to John's purpose in writing, his express purpose. Why did John write the book of John? And we know that from John 20, verse 30 and 31. Here's what he says. And and not every book of the Bible gives us, like, beautifully in a nutshell what the purpose of the book is. But here John tells us in verse 30 of John 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote this book. So you look at John 3.16, and 3.16, it's directly connected He's telling us these accounts, these narratives, and John is telling us about the Lord Jesus because he wants us to believe in him, that he's the son of God, and that we can have life in his name. So before we go any further, let's just emphasize the relevance of the gospel, the relevance of the gospel to every human being. So so maybe you're here this morning and you're successful and you're put together. The gospel's for you. The gospel's for you to trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a hot mess and your life's falling apart and you're not put together and you admit it, the offer of salvation is for you. Maybe you're familiar with religious traditions and you grew up in the church and you know what this whole church thing is all about, the gospel's for you. Maybe this is the first time you've been in church ever or in a long time and the gospel's for you. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so in our text this morning, this offer is made to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. You see him here, right? And some of you are familiar with Nicodemus. He's part of the Sanhedrin, the the ruling body of the Jews. And so if you know anything about the Pharisees, and especially the Sanhedrin, we know that Nicodemus was a man who had it made in the shade. Okay, this was creme de la creme Jew. Nicodemus would have been one of the ones walking around with a power robe on. Because he is in, he is successful, he is influential, he's rich, and he comes and decides to have a conversation with Jesus. Now, since Jesus is a teacher, that seems kind of natural. He wants to ask some questions of a teacher, him being a Sanhedrin member. But Jesus isn't just any, any teacher, Jesus is a controversial teacher. His earthly ministry just began, but already it's causing a buzz 
And a lot of the Pharisees just never even gave Jesus a chance out of the gate. They dismissed him. But Nicodemus is at least intrigued. He's interested. And it says he comes at night, right? Verse, verse 2 here. No, verse 1. He comes by night. No, it's verse 2. And so we don't know exactly why he came at night. It could be that he is worried about his reputation. That's possible. It could also be that's just the time he came. A lot of times the rabbis and the Sanhedrin would, would gather at night. Probably it's most likely symbolic of the darkness and misunderstanding that actually shrouds Nicodemus's mind. He doesn't see very clearly. And so Jesus makes sure we know it's at night. But we have one teacher talking to another. So imagine Nicodemus a teacher, Jesus a teacher. They're talking to each other. And Nicodemus addresses Jesus with respect. He says, Rabbi. He seems genuine. He's not mocking him. When he says the things that he says, he seems genuinely respectful of Jesus. And his statement in verse 2, if you notice, is interesting. He says, we know that you are two things. We know that you're a teacher come from God. And we know that God is with you. And he refers to the signs that Jesus has done. And signs are a really big thing in the book of John. But he says, we know a couple things, Jesus. We know that you are come from God and that God is with you. Both of Nicodemus' statements are true, right? So far, so good, right? Not exactly. <laughs> First, John uses the plural. Notice he, said, he doesn't say, Jesus, I know that you are come from God and I know that you are with, that God is with you. He says we. It's, it's, it's plural. Um, he seems to be, there's like a lack of ownership here. He's not necessarily declaring his own beliefs, although he's probably speaking on behalf of a couple Sanhedrin members. But he's cautious, you know, there's safety in numbers. Yeah, we, we believe this about you. And what's more, his statements, if you have examined them, they're true, but they really give him no more, uh, they give Jesus no more credit than a human teacher who God established and God is blessing. It's really just a great teacher is what he says Jesus is. It's a far cry from the saving belief that John is wanting people to get in this book, which is the belief that Jesus is the Son of God in whom is life, and there's no life outside of Jesus. So Nicodemus isn't there yet, but he's respectful. And it's clear from this late-night conversation, Jesus sees an obstacle to Nicodemus' faith. So he doesn't, he doesn't really exchange pleasantries, like, yeah, Nicodemus, you're also a good teacher. I've heard about you. He cuts right to the chase. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, you got a problem. You have a roadblock. You have this obstacle to your faith. Because Nicodemus had knowledge. He says, I know these things. And if you know the Pharisees, they knew everything there was to know about the law. At least they thought. But they stumbled on something. They stumbled on the actual intention of the law. The heart of the law, which was the point to Jesus Christ. They missed that. They stumbled over that. But they had so much knowledge. So much knowledge. And they stumbled over grace. They couldn't get this idea of grace. And really, the roadblock for Nicodemus was this idea of rebirth. All things must become new. That's the roadblock that Nicodemus has here. Everything's got to become new. I have to be born again. And we gather from Jesus that Nicodemus' knowledge didn't matter. His prestige didn't matter. His wealth didn't matter. Not even his morality mattered. This is a moral guy. None of it mattered because none of that is required for salvation. 
The only thing that's required for salvation is rebirth, to be born again. And so none of the stuff that made Nicodemus the successful, amazing person that he was had any credit with God. And Jesus isn't impressed. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And this phrase really trips Nicodemus up. Like, born again? Really? The idea that he needs to be born again is unfathomable to Nicodemus because what he taught the Jews and what he believed was that every single Jew would enter the kingdom of God and they would enter the kingdom of God through resurrection on the last day. That's what they taught to all the Jews because of their Jewishness and because they were circumcised. So just being a Jew got you into the kingdom of God on the last day through resurrection. That's what he taught. That's what he believed. And so this phrase, born again, doesn't make much sense to him. Jesus is turning everything upside down. Whatever Nicodemus thought he knew, he has to unlearn. He's saying, Jesus is saying, if there's no rebirth, there's no resurrection. If you're not born again, if you're not reborn, then there's no resurrection for you. And Nicodemus thinks he can see, but he's blind as a bat. His understanding is darker than the night sky that they're under as they're talking. Basically, what Jesus is saying is the teacher needs to become the student. You know, the, the expert must become the novice. So the gospel is good news, no doubt about it. But before we can be joyful about the good news, we have to first be sorrowful over the bad news that we're sinners. And then we need a complete restart, that we're born spiritually blind and dead. And if we're not born again, we are hopeless So gospel good news, yes, but it it comes after the bad news of the fact that we are sinners. Whoever believes will have eternal life, but there are roadblocks to belief. And you know this to be true because you interact with people all the time who just struggle to believe. They have roadblocks in their life. That was you at one point. People who are successful without Christ, so maybe you know some of them, they have to be confronted and challenged to see things differently. Because what they've been doing has been working in this world, and now all of a sudden they're told, no, it's not what you think. The kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of man. I don't know about you, but it can be hard for me to confront somebody in general, let alone somebody who is prestigious and rich and successful. We tend to especially care what wealthy and influential people think about us. If I'm around people that are successful and rich and, and notable, which, to be honest, isn't that often, but if I am, I'm very cognizant of what I say, what I wear, maybe what shoes I have on. You know, just, we, we want people to like us, especially people that we think we gain something from, like being in relationship to them may give us some kind of advantage, and so we worry about that. Do I love the successful in our society enough to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ? Do I love the successful people in our world enough to share with them the bad news that they're born sinners? That unless they they forget everything they thought they knew and they're born again, they're destined for an eternity apart from God. The successful person is on top of the world right now, but apart from Christ, they're going to wake up and they're not going to enter the kingdom of God. That's a sad truth. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever have a burden and, and, and care for those people who 
you tend to be jealous of or a little bitter that they seem to have gotten where they've gotten in life. Yeah, but they are on top of the world now, and their eternity is going to be very different from that. So do we have a burden for people? Do I love people more than I care about my reputation of what they think about me? Whether I relate to them or not, do I love them enough to say, listen, you got to be born again. God wants something for you that is very different, obviously lovingly, in relationship with them. And when you consider the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, he repeatedly, Jesus says, Nicodemus, you should know these things. You should know better. Why don't you see this, Nicodemus? And it's hard to know what he means there. But I'm pretty sure what he's saying is, Nicodemus, this stuff is in the Old Testament. Because you're an expert of the law. You're an expert of the Old Testament. So you should know, you should have seen this idea of rebirth in the Old Testament. And he's probably talking about a number of passages. One that I believe he may be thinking of is Ezekiel 36. And notice how Ezekiel writes. And really, he, I think he gives foreshadow of being baptized by water and of the Spirit, which is what John 3 talks about. And Ezekiel writes this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And this is a, this is a future thing. This is talking about the gospel one day and, and, and what it does in our life. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So notice it talks about water and it talks about spirit. So I, I'm thinking that when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, in his mind is Ezekiel. Saying, you should have seen this, Nicodemus. This is the whole new birth. This is a new covenant. This is what Jesus, I am doing in this world. And when we're cleansed by the Holy Spirit, we're given a new heart, the Bible says. Right here in Ezekiel. A new heart one of flesh. Now we can understand the things of the Spirit because it's not a stone heart. The Spirit comes in and the Spirit helps us understand concepts like being born again. It's a whole other dimension that is imperceivable to the naked eye. You can't see the spiritual realm. We can't even see the kingdom of God, much less enter it, Jesus says to Nicodemus. We have to relearn everything. It's kind of like you know, the, the Marvel comic and movie Doctor Strange where Stephen Strange is this successful doctor and he's a genius and, again, he's, he's, ever, he, he's made it. And then he has to go forget everything he ever knew and understand a different reality. And this is, Nicodemus is successful and all of a sudden he's being told, there's a whole other dimension out here, Nicodemus, you don't even understand. Uh, in a book, Look and Live, which is one of my favorite books, uh, Matt Papa says this, what we must begin to understand is that the gospel deconstructs a man before it reconstructs him. First, it teaches him he is entitled to nothing, and then it gives him everything. Good quote, right? I mean, this is, this is the truth of the gospel, and if this hasn't happened yet to you, if you've not been deconstructed, perhaps you've not been born again. Perhaps you like Jesus, you're interested in Jesus, you come here and you say, yeah, Jesus, just like Nicodemus is saying, I know you're a good man, I know you're a good teacher, I know God's with you. Maybe you believe all those things, but you've never had your view of Jesus deconstructed so that God could give you the, the true view. Everything we thought we knew about Jesus needs to be put aside. 
We take him at his word and deed. Verse 11 and 12 in our text, and I, I don't have it up there, but if you glance, if you have your Bible open, verse 11 and 12, Jesus is speaking. He says, we speak of what we know. He's probably talking about him and the Father, maybe him and the disciples, but we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. That's the difference. Do you believe what Jesus said about himself and what he did when he was on earth? Or do you construct a different version of Jesus? Jesus said clearly throughout the Gospels, I am the Son of God. He, in fact, he says, I am one with the Father. And later in John, in verse uh, John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. So, so if you're going to believe in Jesus, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to take him at his word. You have to believe what he says, and that changes everything in your mind. It's different. So maybe you're like Nicodemus this morning, and maybe you're very comfortable with saying, yep, God is with Jesus. Jesus came from God. He's a great teacher. He's an example of pure love, sacrificial love. But do you believe that he is the son of God who came to this earth to die so that we as sinners might be made right with God? Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is no other way for you to be saved, no other way in all of creation but by Jesus Christ? by his shed blood on the cross? Do you believe that you're dead without Jesus? Spiritually dead, blind without Jesus, that none of your accomplishments mean anything. And like Nicodemus, you might be successful, but if you're not right with God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, then it, it means nothing in eternity. I know for a fact that everyone in this room has been born physically. I'm pretty brilliant that way. Everyone here has been born physically, right? But I don't know how to look out and see who's been born again. I don't have that ability. God does. The Spirit does. God knows where you are and where your heart is. Have you been born again? When Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, that you is plural, he's probably not just talking to Nicodemus because he knows that this is Scripture. You, you out there, every one of you, you must be born again. That's, that word must is kind of imperative. It's like you have to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And, you know, I think a lot of people that come into Bethel come from different backgrounds. And maybe you've been a church goer, but this idea of born again, you're not sure about it. I want to be clear about this. This is not a remodel. This is a rebirth. This is not a remodel, this is a rebirth. Nicodemus might have been okay with the remodel, you know? With the remodel, we recognize that there's something salvageable here, right? Okay, there's something that, at least there's this, and we can, we can remodel it. There's a TV show based in Indianapolis called Good Bones on HGTV, HGTV, yeah, that's it, right? Some of you have seen it. And the premise of, 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 a, of a show called Good Bones is that they remodel, I mean, they really remodel homes all the way down to the frame. And they actually have a cool mission, which is to help their community and all of that. But we're okay if we admit, okay, well, you know, like, yeah, I, I, I got some issues. Like, everyone's got issues. Yeah, I mean, but there's still I'm, something good in me, you know? I got good bones, at least. <laughs> a good frame, something to work with. And, and, and Jesus just wants to remodel me, you know, make me better throughout my life. And I got to be a better person. I know I need to work on that bad habit, and I got to do that. But we're seeing from Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus that we are sinful and we are rebellious all the way down to our bones. There's not a, there's not a 
good, righteous bone in our body, apart from Jesus Christ, our motives and our intentions are wrong. And that's, that kind of slaps us in the face, right? Like, I, okay, I know I do bad things, but you're telling me my heart is wrong? Got to be reborn, a whole new start, a complete demo of our old life, complete demo and rebirth. That's a different story. It's interesting that Jesus uses the object lesson of human birth, which is a miracle, right? If you've ever seen a human birth, it's a miracle. I remember when each of my girls were born and I wasn't sure how I would respond or whatever, and I'm not a crier, ask my wife. I cried at every one of their births because it is a miracle. (laughs) It's overwhelming. I remember being overwhelmed with thankfulness to God. I remember being overwhelmed with uh, appreciation and amazement at my wife. (laughs) She did this. God, thank you for for, for doing this. But there's no glory for us in our birth. I mean, we were kind of we're kind of wanting Avery to like help out a little bit more when she was born. Like it took a while, you know? But like there, there's no glory in your own birth. You, you're not really doing anything. It's all the work of the woman. It's all the grace of God. Us husbands might help one one thousandth of a percent. I don't know. But it is no glory for the baby. It's just you're born and you're utterly dependent on others. Even with that baby boss movie, like you're not born totally like able to run a business, okay? (laughs) You're born a baby who's dependent on everyone around you. And so Nicodemus recoils from this idea. He's like, born again? Ah, I don't think I like that. Nicodemus had worked extremely hard to get where he was, extremely hard. I mean, he wasn't a slacker. Nicodemus was no slacker. And he had, in fact, publicly instructed others and said, this is how you enter the kingdom of God. And now, was he wrong this whole time? Like, could it be possible that he was wrong? This whole time he's been teaching people the wrong thing. That's embarrassing to admit. That's humiliating and humbling to admit you've been wrong. And yet that's exactly what's required to come into the kingdom. It's for you to say, I've been wrong this whole time. I thought I knew what life was about. It could actually be, and as I was studying this, I I read one commentator say, and it could be that Nicodemus isn't dense And that he is following Jesus' analogy here. He may not be saying, you're talking about a physical birth? Is that possible for an old man? He may actually be saying, is it really possible for me to start again? Like, I'm an old man. I have worked hard my whole life. Here's where I am. To go back and start again, I don't think I can do that. It might be that he's just struggling with this idea of starting over. How can a man be born when he's old? Can you really teach an old dog new tricks? Could be what he's saying. How can we get over the roadblock of rebirth? How can our heart be softened so that we're humble and so that we admit, yes, I need a new start, God? Well, the remedy this morning is that Christ must become beautiful. Christ must become beautiful. And I want you to look at verse 14 here, if you have your Bible open. And in verse 14, we have a beautiful verse that is a flashback to Numbers 21. You may be familiar with the account in Numbers 21 where the camp of Israel has been overwhelmed with venomous snakes. You remember? Because they rebelled against God. They complained and they they actually um, had this heart of ingratitude. They were rebellious in their hearts. And so God sends these venomous snakes and all of the the people are bitten. And I don't know, maybe it was just the ones who who had had a heart that was rebellious, but they're all bitten with these venomous snakes, and they stand under the judgment of God because God sent the snakes. 
But God doesn't only bring judgment. Yeah, he brings judgment, and then he also brings a remedy. And God tells Moses, lift up a bronze serpent on a pole. And whoever looks up at that serpent will be spared. They'll be saved. Their life will be saved. They have this sentence of death upon them, venom like coursing through their veins. And and if they just look at the snake, if they just look at the bronze snake, they're healed. They have a new lease on life. And And John tells us in this passage, and he's the only one to do this, John tells us this was all to foreshadow Jesus Christ on the cross. Isn't that amazing? That that account was done just as it was by God so that we would have a picture of Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross. He's the only gospel writer to unlock the meaning of that for us. It's always weirded me out that Jesus was compared to a snake. Like anyone else? Is that weird to you? Like as a kid, I was always like... And the types and stuff, that's one that I just don't know what, what's up with the snake thing, you know? And when you think about it, it actually makes sense because I realized as I studied that God chose the snake to be the remedy because it was symbolic and it was representative of the actual judgment that had come upon them. And so the judgment was through the snakes, and now they're looking at a, a symbol of the judgment, and they're being saved. And, of course, when we think about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Becoming sin on the cross. The Bible says he became sin. The very thing that courses through our veins, sin, he becomes. Sin is put upon him. So it's very appropriate that he would be looked at in that kind of way. 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus became sin. Who knew no sin? And we stand under the judgment of God because of that sin. And, and, And God, yes, he judges us because of our sin, but he also gives us the remedy in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you see Jesus on the cross for who he really is, you can see the kingdom of God and you can enter the kingdom of God. But unless you look at Jesus on the cross and you see him for who he really is, you will never see the kingdom of God. You will never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus makes all the difference. He must be seen with the eyes of faith. And here's why. Because the crucifixion, is most heinous. I mean, when you think about the cross and the torture that it was, it's heinous. And from one angle, from the human perspective, this is the darkest day in history. This is the worst thing that's ever happened, ever. But with the eyes of faith, with a different angle, we actually realize that Jesus is being exalted. Yeah, he's, been, he's suffering and he is, he doesn't even look human, the Bible says in Isaiah, but he's being glorified. He's being exalted. That's the crazy thing about it that that we understand when we read the book of John, because John refers to this several times when he talks about Jesus being lifted up. That's always always an expression that's used with glory and, and, and showcasing glory, lifted up. Later in John, he'll say, Jesus will say, the Son of Man must be lifted up, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. This is a glorious thing, Jesus on the cross, but it looks terrible. And unless you can see Jesus for who he really is, unless you can see the beauty of, of Jesus Christ, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Jesus is lifted up and he will draw all men to himself. He's a great magnet, right? He's the center of the universe. He's the center of God's plan. And if you can see Jesus like that on the cross, now you start to understand something about yourself. Well, my sin on Jesus. Jesus' righteousness given to me, 
that's beautiful. That's not just a terrible incident that happened to a man one day outside of Jerusalem. Like, what a terrible story. It's not just that. It's something altogether different. It's beautiful because it's, it's a man who was perfect, who's also God, in my place, and my sin on him, and his righteousness in me, and that's beautiful. Unless you can see Jesus like that, you'll never see the kingdom of God. I want to make sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying with this point. If you say, am I saying that Jesus isn't beautiful? He must become beautiful? That's not what I'm saying. Jesus is intrinsically beautiful. He is higher than any other name. He's matchless in every way. We can't add to Jesus' beauty. We can't take away from Jesus' beauty. I'm not saying that he must become beautiful because he's not. I'm saying that you have to see him as beautiful. And if you can see him as, a, as beautiful, then you understand what God is telling Nicodemus, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, that this is the king who was exalted for us in a very peculiar manner and who became sin for us. Jesus is beautiful. You know, being reborn, it means identifying with Jesus. When, when Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you've got you to be born again. He's kind of saying, you have to identify with me. He's going to die and he's going to be resurrected. Being born requires identifying with Jesus. Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So identifying with Jesus means death, which leads to rebirth. John 12, 23 through 26, and you'll see this one on the screen. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Notice that uh, in this verse, Jesus says, The hours come for me to be glorified. He's going to be glorified on the cross and, of course, through the resurrection, and he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And he says, if you love your life, like Nicodemus, you love it, you're, you got it made, you know, and you love your life on this earth and you're not willing to give it up and start again, you're going to lose it in eternity. But if you're willing to lay it down and say, you know what, I thought I knew what life was about, but I guess I didn't after all. Make me new. I want to be born again. And you lose your life, so to speak, you gain it for all eternity. That's what Jesus is saying when he's talking to his disciples here. So we identify with the death of Christ. And I actually was pondering this. I wonder if Nicodemus actually saw Jesus on the cross the day he died. I wonder if he was in the crowd and saw Jesus lifted up and remembered the words that Jesus said to him. You know, just as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, so I must be lifted up. And I wonder if Nicodemus saw that and thought, wow, <laughs> that's what he was talking about. I think he might have. And the reason I say I think he might have is because Nicodemus' story isn't over in the book of John. And if you want some good reading later, go to John 7 and John 19. Because in John 7, Nicodemus stands up for Jesus a little bit. He says, hey, when he's on, like, they're, they're starting to talk about bringing him in and charging him. He's like, shouldn't the man like, be able to defend himself? Like, shouldn't we, we examine this, these things? And then in John 19, we have the beautiful end to Nicodemus' story, at least what we have. And you might remember he's one of the men, him and Joseph of Arimathea, who took Jesus' body from the cross 
and put his body in the tomb and respected his body. And they, I mean, they're risking a lot when they do this. And this isn't even at night. So, so it seems that Nicodemus became a devoted follower of Jesus. So I think he's standing there looking at Jesus being lifted up and it changes him. I love that because without that, this might just seem like any other story with another Pharisee because Jesus is always saying to the Pharisees, you don't understand. <laughs> you got to think differently. But we know that Nicodemus was affected by Christ. We identify with the death of Christ, just like Nicodemus did. We identify with the burial of Christ. You know, when we get baptized, this is what the picture is. The picture is of us being buried with Jesus, our sins, buried with Jesus, forever there, away from us, buried. And then, of course, we come back up out of the water, and it represents our new life, our rebirth. So I want to encourage you, because when I study the scriptures, I see baptism as this Beautiful picture of my old life buried and dead and my new life, my rebirth with Jesus. And if that's never been your baptism story and you've never followed Christ in that believer's baptism, I want to encourage you. God puts this on your heart today. Follow him in that. Picture that to people. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. Picture that to the world and say, this is what happened to me. I actually was dead spiritually and my, and my old life is dead with Christ, left there, buried, and I'm new. And I'm made new and I'm walking with Christ. So we identify with death of Christ, we identify with the burial of Christ, and of course with the resurrection. And rebirth is resurrection. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a whole new life. It means eternal life. And as God's people, let us be proud to identify with Jesus Christ. Let's not be so worried what people think of us, whether they be influential or not, that we fail to identify with Jesus Christ. Our greatest way of relating to people is not by the clothes we wear or the music we listen to, or the movies we watch. It's because we have this good news for all people. We can relate to anyone, whoever they are, because we have the gospel. This past week on Tuesday, in one day, I got a chance to talk to uh, three different people about the gospel, and this was a God thing. This doesn't happen. It's not like every day in the pastor's life, okay? And you think that. It's not. This was a really cool day in the sense that I got to talk first to a former drug dealer, gang member, having a really difficult time in life. And man, his, his story is crazy. And got a chance to share the gospel with him and just walk him through the Romans road and give him a Bible. And it was a really, it was a, it was a meaningful thing for me. And then it was only a few hours later, I'm in my office interviewing a nine-year-old church kid <laughs> who's like, he didn't even want to say the word hell. He's like, we're saved from, I can't say it. It's a word I'm not allowed to say. I'm like, hell, yes. This is the time to talk about, you know, heaven and hell. But like, he's a church kid. He's nine. <laughs> Very different than the guy I was just talking to. And then later that evening, I was talking to a, you know, 26-year-old Ivy League graduate. And he is, I mean, smart guy, um, trusted in Christ, I, I think sometime in his college years. I mean, these people couldn't be any different. They, they really couldn't be. And they were all different ethnicities, all three of them from each other. And I got a chance to share the gospel and, and go over the gospel with the third. And I'm thinking to myself, because I'm already in this text, I'm thinking about the sermon, is, wow, the gospel is relevant for every person. So stop trying to be so, you know, in or relevant or whatever. And just remember, you have something. I don't care if you're trendy or not, if you're a hipster or not, or whatever you are. You have Jesus Jesus, the way he loves this, this man, Nicodemus, and the way we're going to see next week how he loves the woman at the well, he just goes to where people are, and he meets people in their need, because that's pe what people really need from us, right? Like my advancement, like me advancing myself 
to other people does nothing for them. It doesn't matter what they think of me. It matters what they think of Jesus. Do they see him beautiful? Do they see him exalted on the cross? Or is it just a stumbling block for them? Let's proclaim the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus to everyone that we know. Everyone that we know. May we be known not for the cool shoes we have, but may we be like it says in Scripture, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the good news who share Jesus with others. That's what we, that's what we have to offer people.